So it is a great honor to be with you uh, here today. For those of you who were not uh, with us online two weeks ago, I shared a little bit of our story. By the way, my wife is here, Maria, over to my right, and my youngest son, David, uh, as well. Um, so about eight years ago or so, we were serving in another church in the area, and from time to time, we would have the opportunity to get away and uh, just drop in on other places and get encouragement. And we found Intown, and we started covertly attending Intown, uh, very secretly, and uh, never introduced ourselves to pretty much anybody. We were just there to and encourage. I want you to know, you fed us and blessed us and served us, and you didn't even know you were doing it. And the fact that you are here, you're still here after these years and after all this struggle. And that I'm here to share with you in this moment is a joy that I can hardly express. That I'm able to partner with you and you can give back a little of what you have given to us. We need to know you us. And I want you to know that in all the struggles and the darkness that you have experienced and are experiencing, you have given to people and blessed people that you're ungrateful. And this will continue. And God will take all of that up and redeem it and hold it and make it eternal. And your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Not at all. So thanks be to God that we are gathered here, that I am here with you. Thank you very much for that. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my need. Amen. So this is the third in our little mini-series in the book of Jeremiah. If you missed the other two, that's okay. Uh, we'll just dial in on the one passage in Jeremiah that most people are probably familiar chapter 29. But let's see if it has something new to say to as best I can tell, somewhere in the early 1960s, our culture in the West, and particularly in this country and Britain, uh, took a turn. For centuries, in fact, around 313, when the Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, made Christianity the official uh, religion of the empire, Christians had, by and large, operated on the premise that our faith is in need of an external surrounding culture or government to pop it up or to give it the respect and credibility it deserves. Now, we can be forgiven for thinking this way because many of us have grown up in this world not realizing that it was ever any other way. In the West, before the 60s, and certainly there are lots of things leading up to that turn. But in the West, before the 60s, no one, generally speaking, questioned whether something like Sunday school was a good idea for kids or not. And no one really worried about their kids not growing up to be good Christian folk. In my lifetime, I remember that restaurants lived for Sunday afternoon at 12.30. Do you remember this? When everyone got out of church 
and went out for Sunday dinner. Maybe this is my work. On Sundays, you couldn't get a gallon of gas. You couldn't shop. I'm told about a day when you couldn't even go to the movies on Sunday. And cinemas are open every day of the year now. Now, I'm not suggesting that those were the good old days, and all will be well if we somehow recover all of that. But I can say there was such a cozy relationship between church and the surrounding culture that it was easy to believe Christians were in charge. You sort of slipped into that mind. Politicians at that time needed to know their Bible as well as they did their laws. If our elected officials needed to give assent to Jesus in order to get into office, that indicated to us that the culture was Christian, or so we think. Now, in this atmosphere, it's difficult to discern whether we win being an American and being a Christian. Giving the impression that Christians matter in some sort of powerful, impactful way. But it was only by enforcement and cultural dominance that Christianity had its place in society. Well, now, it's a different story, isn't it? To be sure, there remains this version of Christianity that aspires to cultural acceptance and views of cultural dominance. The culture wars are made wars because both sides are very much determined to exterminate the other. But even with that Christian strain of nationalism and obsession with cultural prominence, it is very different today than it was years ago, right? Today, many parents, like Alan, one like myself, and like you, spend a good deal of time trying to explain to our children why what is common and assumed by their friends is not right for them. And that is quite about isn't it? The Christians, we say, we're different. Try an experiment in high school or college class. Next time your teacher asks the class to reflect on an event or a particular controversy, and you're asked to give reasons why you believe what you do, say it's because Jesus Christ taught <laughs> And just see what kind of reaction you get. <laughs> this isn't our world anymore. Not that it ever really was. That many Christians voted a particular way in the past two presidential elections doesn't mean that they were pleased with their options, signaling that we are really on the outside looking in. And do you sense that there's a generation that's grieving the loss of the 1950s that are early Seems to me that they feel it's finally slipped out of their fingers, and any call to retrieve what's lost is one that resonates, resonates with a lot of people. No one can seriously argue that ours is a Christian society today. It's something very post-Christian at best. And I want to suggest that this is not such a bad thing. 
Now we get to be in society that no one else can be, because no one else is purported to be explicitly following Jesus in word and in action. Finally, we can truly act like children. But in order to do that, we have to flip our view of things from being the dominant species that follow the chain to being the immigrants, the strangers, the aliens. What if we Christians are the ones who are the threats? What if the wall is quietly being built to keep us out? What if we're not holding but we've been sent into exile. How do we live in a world where we are on the margins, not in power? That is, how do we live like the cross-bearing, death-embracing, suffering servant who saved the world? And this is why I find Jeremiah 29 so fascinating. God's people are sent from exile in Babylon, who is the world power of the day. They have fought Egypt, the dominance, they have won. Now Nebuchadnezzar turned his sight on Judah, and he did so in two ways. In the first way, he deposed Jehoiakim and set up Zedekiah as his vassal king, the little king. In his first way, he took the best of the best from Judah in his battle. Later, when Judah rebelled again under Zedekiah, not very bright, Nebuchadnezzar returned in 587 BC and he claimed house of Now, his intention, Nebuchadnezzar's intention in taking in that first wave, especially the best of best, the most prominent leaders, the most talented workers, was to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. So that they would lose their identity as Jews and essentially become Babylonians. And if not themselves, at least their children would become that way. And that happens when people move to a new culture. The second or third generation immigrants often lose that vital connection, identity giving connection to the country of the Gentile. The difference in Nebuchadnezzar's day was that it was a strategy. It was a strategy for conquering a rival kingdom. You could slaughter a nation and wipe them out that way, or you could increase your own population and increase your economic and military prosperity and acquire better artists and engineers by forcing them to lose their identity and become better. Now you may remember the story of Daniel. Daniel and his three friends. Do you remember what the first thing the king did when Daniel and his three friends arrived in battle? Do you remember the first thing? They changed what? It's okay to speak. I mean, this is about same here. I think we're online, but not too far. The food they did, they changed the food. Changed the food, changed the name. As well. Change food, change how they live, change ordinary, normal circumstances, and then change that identity giving name. 
and he recognized their skills, and then he puts the prisoners in positions of honor and authority, even. Fascinating. Doesn't that seem odd? You conquer this rebellious nation, and then you make their young men leaders in your own court. And it does seem strange to us, but it makes perfect sense if you're trying to build your empire. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar is up to here. He wants the best Israelites to become Babylonians. So he gives them a measure of freedom to where they live, their occupations, etc. Now that's Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. From the point of view of the Jews, they aren't looking at this exile as an opportunity and a new career in international business. Okay? Exile, for the Jews, is excruciating. It is identity destroyed. We live in an age of globalization where boundaries are a bit more fluid, don't we? And our identity isn't as deeply ingrained. I have lived in five United States, five states in the U.S., and three different countries. I have no idea who I am or where I am. <laughs> and you know what? I cope fairly well with that. I think. But for an Israelite to be taken out of the promised land and facing the prospect of annihilation by assimilation, it was cause for despair. So the people were in turmoil. They were grasping at any word that would be the hope. And some of the prophets that were alluded to in our reading, like Shemaiah, were encouraging them that this isn't going to last very long. Everything's going to be fine. They'll be going home soon. And God had some very strong words for that problem. Nevertheless, the question they were asking was, how quickly can we get out of here with all of our culture and our identity intact? And, most importantly, when will Nebuchadnezzar get his comeuppance? Look what he did to us. He's the enemy. He has destroyed our lives. He has put us in bondage. We live in an exiled land. God, come back and give him what he deserves. And God responds to that plea and to that prayer. And his message to them through Jeremiah is, settle down. Get comfortable. Look for permanent housing. <laughs> Produce veggies and children. Pray for and love the people who are bent on your destruction. Now, have you read Jeremiah 29, this famous passage in that life before? Maybe. Maybe not. This sacrifice for your enemy message is not the usual way we interpret this text. The I know the plans I have for you text tends to get applied to our desire for increased comfort and favorable circumstances. Okay, some of that is here. They're talking about restoration to the promised land. I get that. The heart of Jeremiah 29 is the counterintuitive power of dying to self and carrying a cross. Who wants that? Now, if that wasn't bad enough, 
these commands. We also discover disturbing news about God. When the passage was read for us, did you hear who took the Jews into exile? Nebuchadnezzar? Well, that's not what God said. God said twice, I took you into exile. What? God's responsible for all of this? Nebuchadnezzar is the instrument, not the evil one. God took his people into exile, and God, God's plans and actions are never wasted, so God has a divine intention for exile. A divine and loving intention for exile. Now that's where pondering. The New Testament picks up this idea in exile in several ways. For instance, in James, and then our New Testament reading in 1 Peter 1. Followers of Jesus are called exiles or resident aliens. In 2 Corinthians, we're called ambassadors for Christ. In other words, we're sent by God into a foreign land to be his representatives so that people will see our works and glorify God in heaven. That's one of the purposes of being an exile, so that the world will be jarred by people who seem to be from a different country. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. Do you think it's possible, I know it's, it's just theoretical, but do you think it's possible that American Christians could occasionally be confused about the location of their true citizenship. Yes. I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, if you've lived through an election year in this country, do you think it's possible to behave and speak in such a way that others might get the impression that we too, as Christians, think that our will be and our hope for a future are dependent on this earthly kingdom. Yeah, it's possible. Maybe even likely. Now, you remember all that stuff I said at the beginning of the sermon? Of course you do. <laughs> How Christianity and our country have blended themselves so strongly that we wonder where one ends and the other begins. How easily we lose that identity. We are resident aliens. We are the immigrants. We're not permanent residents who stake our hopes and dreams on this earthly kingdom. We're exiles. And watching the past two elections have highlighted how we as followers of Jesus may very well be overlooking Philippians 3.20. True citizens of heaven, settle down and don't withdraw. They don't assimilate into the culture. And they love sacrifice. I think the key verse in the text to understand what God is saying here is verse 7. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So pray for the peace. Now that's the familiar word, shalom. There's not one word equivalent in English for it. It means peace, yes, but it also means all sorts of human flourishing. It means social flourishing, economic prosperity, wholeness. It means people are happy and not at war with one another, and crime is very low. It means there's psychological and spiritual health, and there's commerce and justice and joy. And God says, you, I, are supposed to seek that for Babylon. Babylon. Babylon is a metaphor for as bad as it gets. Not Jerusalem. I mean, we expect him to say that about Jerusalem. That's what Psalm 122 says. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. But now God is saying, turn your love and your prayer and your peace toward Babylon. Can you imagine hearing this about your enemies? Now my guess is that most of us in this room have lived long enough to be able to identify at least one person that could be called our enemy. Perhaps there are more who have hurt you and you're unsure what to think about them or what to do about them. And processing the anger and the bitterness can seem like a just a never-ending vortex of emotional calisthenics. Perhaps we go get therapy, perhaps, perhaps we argue with them in our head while we're brushing our teeth. <laughs> Not that I've ever done. <laughs> Maybe we cry. Maybe we tell a lot of friends what we've endured, washed, rinsed, repeat. Now I think about our city. In the wake of the turmoil in our city, mainly over the past year, I've heard a number of stories of Christians who, in their frustration, understand with what they see as, I'll just say it, liberalism gone luck, they have chosen to leave, to move states where their values are from. Now look, I get it. There are different circumstances for every person. So maybe, okay? I want to be fair and gracious. But as I look at Scripture, the way of the kingdom of God is the way of the cross. And when we take God seriously, we're taking the cross seriously. So we settle down, and we plant, and we cultivate, and we pray for that enemy, the one who deserves And we pray for a city that is lost and backwards and dark and hopeless. And when we step into this sort of love and sacrifice for enemies, you know what we discover? That's where we meet God. Because God is in exile. Or to put it another way, exile is for God. The Word was made flesh and moved into the neighborhood, as Peterson paraphrased it. Jesus, resident Adrian, who died for his enemies. Who was the enemy? 
Or who we got that? Oh, not them out there, not the Democrats, not the Republicans, not the protesters, not the whites, blacks, anarchists, right-wingers, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And now, if we live like him, our city can prosper. And it's the only way. The only way our world could live was for Christ to die. The only way our neighbors would see the light of Christ is that we die. Die yourself. Influence not by coercion or by political power, but by dying to self and giving away. It doesn't really matter. If our candidate gets into office, that's short term. The greater consequence is the kingdom of God. And that's why we have been called into exile for the sake of.